0: You're listening to a podcast from St. Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, be great to still have your Bibles or your Bible app open at John chapter 16. We're in our very final week of our mini-series on the fruit of the Spirit. We began with patience, gentleness, today is joy. There's also an outline on the back of the news and there's translation points there in English, Korean, Dinka and simplified Chinese if that sort of help to you. Right now, let's pray and ask the ultimate help. Holy Spirit, we pray this day that you would please fill us with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and especially this day, joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Christian joy is not the same as worldly happiness. If you look up the best-selling list of self-help books on Amazon, you'll find a whole litany of titles focusing on attaining or achieving happiness. Happy life, happy kids, secrets to happiness, how to be 10 times happier. I'm not sure why they stop at 10 times happier and go for 100 times happier, but there you go, it's 10 times happier. Now, I haven't read them all, but I'm confident that the general premise, the general trajectory of those books goes something like this. Happiness is the most desirable of all emotions. Who wouldn't want to be happy? Happiness, almost unquestionably, is a worthy goal for your life to be pursued. And the means to happiness is within your reach if you simply look within and apply some effort. It's the pinnacle of emotions, the worthiest of goals within your grasp. Which means that you have the responsibility and the resources to dial up that which leads to happiness and to dial down or exclude those things which impinge on or restrain your happiness. It's why, actually, I think many of the books focus on techniques or approaches to overcome or exclude those things that diminish happiness and techniques and approaches to develop and maximise the source of happiness. Now, before you think, oh Adam, you are such a, a killjoy, what do you have against happiness? Are you part of some sort of anti-happy establishment or something like that? No, I'm not. I actually like being happy, okay? If you just look at all the photos we post, we're on holidays, they're usually the, the happy ones. We like being happy. I just don't think happiness is a worthy pursuit of your life. There's something better. See, the problem is that if you make happiness the pursuit of your life, if you make it the end goal, not only will you end up feeling it's yours or someone else's fault when you're not happy, but when sorrow or trouble comes, when people are difficult or hard, you either need to exclude it, ignore it, or be crushed by it. Joy is so much better. For joy is not a fleeting emotion that comes and goes in dependence on your circumstances. Joy is not a goal, but a gift from the one whom we make the object of our lives. And joy is not found by looking within, by looking to and delighting in the one who gives it. Joy is the the fruit of the Spirit of God coming into your life and transforming it from within, right from our hearts. As we've been considering different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit and how to nurture and grow in those, our method has been to consider how we see that fruit on display in the character and the life of Jesus. But I've got to tell you that when I think of Jesus... I don't usually think about him as being joyful. Okay, so loving, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled. Yes, I think about all those things when I think about Jesus. But I rarely think about him as joyful. Now, maybe that's just my own baggage. Maybe I'm a party pooper or something like that, or perhaps my mind just always rushes to the cross. But of course, Jesus was joyful. He knew joy. He modeled joy. And he's the giver of joy. In fact, the writer of the letter of the Hebrews said that even for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. Now, that's not because Jesus was deluded or just spinning a really bad situation or seeking out pain, but there's something else fueling Jesus' joy. This is a a robust type of joy. And one of the places, which I think is a bit surprising, but one of the places we see that most on display is as he shared a final meal with his friends, warned of his departure, of trouble ahead, and the promise of joy. Joy is so much more than the absence of trouble or a cheerful disposition. Jesus showed the disciples, and he shows us how we embrace the joy he brings we remember a promise fulfilled, we enjoy our our present love and rejoice in a permanent victory. So first, how do we embrace the joy of Jesus? We remember a promise fulfilled. So let's have a look from verse 19 of chapter 16. Jesus said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? So let's set the scene here. In John's Gospel, this is part of an extended scene, chapters 13 through to 17, which is sometimes called the Farewell Discourse. That title, the Farewell Discourse, is just a fancy way of saying what Jesus said at the final meal that he shared with his friends, with his disciples, before he went to the cross. And by the time we get to chapter 16, the disciples know that Jesus is going, that there is trouble ahead, but also that the spirit is coming, or at least that's what Jesus has told them. The mood is somber. The disciples are very confused and they are very afraid. Even as Jesus speaks, it seems they're asking one another, what does he mean? In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. They can't process what Jesus is saying. Of course, Jesus has been telling them this all along, but it just hasn't sunk in. It just hasn't made and still doesn't seem to make any sense. Emotionally, the threat of his impending departure is too much. Intellectually, it's not computing. What do you mean you'll go and then you'll be back? Psychologically, this might not be lining up with their expectations they're probably expecting some sort of victory, not his absence or something far, far worse. But whatever difficulty they have now making sense of Jesus' words, that's only become compounded as they imminently witness the horrors of his trial and his death. But note what Jesus says in verse 20. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So I want you to first note that, that, see, Jesus doesn't dismiss or minimise the grief in any way. Often in our culture, the the path promoted to happiness is to simply ignore or to reframe things that are hard or sad. Perhaps at times you've even caught yourself saying to a friend or to a loved one when they've said something, described something that's difficult in their life, saying, well, maybe it's not that bad. Or maybe you can think about it another way. But not Christianity. Christianity doesn't say that you need to ignore or refrain hard things. It doesn't deny the grief or the pain. But says that there is a way to stare it in the face, even sit amidst the mess, and still know a joy that pervades and a joy that lasts. Why? Because that grief, whilst real, will not be final. Jesus says the path to that joy, a joy promised, centred in him, that cannot be taken away, will be achieved by his very going away. That there was something so powerful about his going to the cross and in his resurrection that it would change us and the world forever. You will see me no more, and then you will see me again. Your grief will give way to joy. His going is a giving birth to something new and something lasting. That, of course, is the analogy of childbirth that Jesus uses. Jesus' point, of course, is not that when a baby is born, all the pain is forgotten, but that when the baby arrives, there's a a joy greater than the pain. In the ancient world, and of course still in many places today, children are born in very difficult circumstances without medical assistance or, or pain relief. In the ancient world, childbirth wasn't just painful but was also extraordinarily risky for the woman and for the child. The maternal mortality rates, the rates of women dying in childbirth was extraordinarily high. The disciples are going to experience the pain of something new being born. A pain that is going to be all the more intensified as the very cause of that pain, Jesus' death, will be the source and cause of some people's rejoicing. But it will be nothing like the pain that Jesus will bear. Our joy will be born through his death. When Jesus talks about the labour pains, indicating the woman's time has come, the, the actual word is not merely that the time has come, but that the hour has come. We heard back in week one, when Jesus said to his mum at the wedding, my hour has not yet come. But now, in the grief that the disciples feel and the pain which Jesus will bear, the hour has arrived. What is that hour? The crowning glory of his life, making way for salvation through his death. Through his death and triumph over the grave. Jesus did it. Jesus did just as he promised. In a little while you will see me no more, And then after a little while, you will see me. You will rejoice with a joy that cannot be taken away. So can you see the implications of this? That if you are a Christian, you do not need to do anything to create or earn that joy. It is a joy given to you and made possible through what Jesus has done. We embrace that joy as we remember the promise fulfilled and the future hope that we grasp. So often when things are hard or facing uncertainty, I want to put joy on hold and wait till things are resolved. But the joy that we're promised pervades through all in the knowledge that things won't be resolved ultimately until he comes. If you're a Christian, you have a joy that cannot be taken away. It's permanent. Even amidst the hardest things of life. The most difficult things we witness, experience or long for, we can know a joy that is lasting and pervading because it's dependent upon something already achieved. And as sure as Jesus died and rose, we too can be confident that we'll see him again soon. I suspect, I've got a hunch that one of the reasons that we can sometimes struggle with joy and that I can struggle with joy to experience the joy that the Spirit longs, to actually ripen our lives, is not only because we can search for joy and happiness in promises of things that don't really last, but also because we simply forget the promise fulfilled of the one who is forever. John Bergen, who was my very good friend and our brother in Christ, who went home to the Lord earlier this year. If you ever knew John, you'd know that whenever you greeted him, And you said, Hello, John, and you said, How are you? He would always, without fail, respond with, Rejoicing. And then he'd lean in and say, You know why, don't you? And say, Because I'm rejoicing in the Lord. John knew a joy that was permanent because what Jesus achieved was permanent. I have to tell you, I have to be honest, that sometimes when I'd greet John and say, how are you? And I'd say, "Rejoicing," And then he'd say, you know why, don't you? Sometimes I just want to fast forward and go, yes, John, I know why. You've told me so many times. But John was so wise and knew that both his heart and mine needed a constant reminding of the source to which our joy is anchored. Whatever helps you keep remembering the promises fulfilled will help you to embrace the joy that the Spirit brings. Of course, we do that as we read and meditate on God's word. We do that as we gather and praise as God's people. But there are also many things in the rhythms of our life which can help us keep remembering that promise fulfilled. Delighting in creation helps us to look forward to and trust in the hope of new creation. When we share and celebrate meals with others, we can remember the promise fulfilled and look forward to that feast which awaits. When we pour out our joy and share that with others around us, it reminds of the joy that's prepared and poured out for us. Those things may not be the source of joy, but we can peg our ultimate source and be reminded of what is. Second, how do we embrace the joy that Jesus brings? we enjoy a present love. So verse 23. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Jesus has already spoken of the ways that the Spirit will keep making him known to the disciples, and the Spirit does that for us as well. And the point here of asking the Father directly is repeated by Jesus just a few verses later. So we know that this is really important. Now, let's deal with the really obvious thing here. When Jesus says, my Father will give you whatever you ask my name, it cannot possibly mean that absolutely whatever we ask, so long as we use Jesus' name, that God is compelled to give it to us, okay? So praying in Jesus' name is not some sort of magical incantation. Now, if you have that view, if you adopt that view, not only is it going to lead to a really distorted view of God, you know, a view of God who is willing to act even not in accordance with his own character and plans, that'd be a really disordered view of God, but if you adopt that view, then you'll either end up thinking that there's something inadequate in your conviction and prayer or something inadequate with God when you don't get what you want. No, so what is Jesus saying? That even though he is going, in fact, it is because of his going to the cross, that they and we can enjoy a deep and pervading relationship with God through him. Sure, they will no longer ask Jesus anything in the sense that he won't physically be there. But the relationship with God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, will be more alive than ever. The Father answers their prayers. The Father answers our prayers. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're recognising that we belong to him. We exist for his glory. So, of course, God answers our prayer in accordance with his will and in the name of the one whom we pray. I think so often we get caught up in the, the content of our prayer and just forget that prayer is the, one of the very means by which we embrace his joy. As we pray, we experience and enjoy his present love. We can do that right now. We see that intimacy in verse 27. The Father himself loves you. He loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. It's a pretty common frustration nowadays that when you ring up a company to get some sort of help, not only does it actually feel pretty impossible to get to speak to a real person, you navigate through a mind-bending maze of automated prompts and then so often you get to a person, and when you finally get to them, you only discover that they're not empowered to actually help you. Imagine if you dulled up and you got straight through to the CEO. Jesus says that his death and resurrection are breaking open a way that we might have direct relationship with God, unimpeded by sin, because he has overcome it. That's what's available to us as we put our trust in Jesus. Throughout my life, I think one of the most forming experiences as a follower of Jesus has been witnessing brothers and sisters in Christ who, right in the thick of anguish and trouble, respond time and time again, almost by default. But I know it's well-worn faithfulness. But they respond almost by default by plunging themselves into prayer. Not to score points, not mere ritual, but that even admits that trouble to delight and enjoy the love of God. I remember one night at home hearing Giovanna, our youngest, calling out from from bed. She was having trouble sleeping. She'd had some really bad dreams. And so she was scared. She'd just actually learnt the Lord's Prayer. We'd been teaching it to, to the kids as they get to uh, an age where they can remember that. And I remember that as I went into her and as I offered to pray, I also just added, Oh, darling, you know that whenever you're feeling scared or whenever you feel alone, that you can pray that prayer too. In fact, I want to tell you that, that no one can take away that from you, no one can take that away. And of course, I didn't just mean reciting the Lord's Prayer, as wonderful it is, but that nothing can get in the way when you've got your trust in Jesus of knowing and enjoying God's love. No one, nothing can take that away from you. No one, no circumstance. And when I said that to her, she said, Really? And then we prayed. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a reason why, more than any other passage, more than any other verse, these are the verses that I've had the extraordinary privilege of reading alongside someone in the final moments and the final hours it's why even amidst the darkest of hours even amidst tear-soaked prayer there is something of joy that we can know that we can embrace as we cry out to him and as we experience his love I wonder if you've ever done that I wonder if you do that Third, how do we embrace the joy that Jesus brings? We rejoice in a permanent victory. Verse 33, I've told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In John's gospel, whenever you see or hear the word world, it can often mean not just the earth or the population of the earth, but it can mean the sin, means sin and the entire realm of evil. So all the brokenness we experience and we are part of as well. And when Jesus says that I've overcome those things, I've overcome the world, he's not merely saying that he's put a bit of a dent or a blow to sin, evil and death, but saying I've overcome it. I have conquered it permanently, decisively. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet, but it's like that future's rushing into that moment in order to help them understand the full gravity of what he's about to achieve. They so desperately need to hear that because it meant that even when things look like they had failed, which is how it would look, he will triumph. Even when they experience trouble, they know God is with them. Even when things look grim, they know that victory has been won. When Jesus says they will have trouble, he doesn't just mean you know, a bit of a hiccup, doesn't mean just a spot of bother. The word for, for trouble is used elsewhere in the New Testament, sometimes in reference to the calamities associated with war. This is a serious word. In Hebrews, that word is even used of the very afflictions that Jesus faced and bore. They will go from grief to joy when they encounter the risen Jesus, but it won't be smooth sailing after that. It's like Jesus wants these words to come rushing back to them, to spring up from their hearts when they face that trouble, when they encounter those difficult times. And so I want to encourage you that if you're right in the thick of trouble, if right now you feel that struggle to experience and enjoy the joy of Jesus, that you let that voice of Jesus, those words, be the tune of your heart too. I have overcome the world we can take heart because his death is the defeat of sin and his resurrection is the triumph over the grave and that this victory is not only permanent but it also permanently belongs to those who follow him it is finished he is seated at the right hand of the father and it's from there he will return in C.S. Lewis's classic book, Surprise by Joy, he shares how much of his journey, his journey to faith, was actually in response to a pursuit of joy that seemed ever, uh, ever elusive. Lewis wasn't a stranger to paint by any means. And in his book, in that book, he actually describes some of those times of sadness and really dark despair. But he also said that no matter how good his experience of beauty, longing, and and joy were before he was Christian, he said they were never seemed complete. They're always fleeting, always incomplete, never lasting. In in our culture, if if we feel that incompletion, that lack of satisfaction, that usually just results in us pressing more into pursuit of those things. But Lewis recognised that those things would never ultimately satisfy because they were merely signposts pointed to something greater than himself, like echoes of a song he had never heard. That song is Jesus. And it was only when Lewis followed Jesus that he could embrace his joy instead of listening to that song from a distance. There is so much good that we can enjoy But the way that we can grow in joy is by embracing the one who gives it. We remember a promise fulfilled, enjoy a present love, and rejoice in his permanent victory. Let's pray. Precious God, we thank you so much for all the good gifts that you pour upon us. We especially thank you, Lord, that as we put our trust in you, you also give us the gift of your spirit who is at work ripening your fruit in our lives. Lord, this day, we especially thank you for the joy that you give. Lord, we thank you for a joy that is anchored to Jesus in, in who he is, what he's done, what he's promised to do and how we praise you, Lord, that nothing can take that joy away. Lord, we pray that you would help us to really embrace that joy. Lord, we thank you that even amidst trouble, disappointment, unfulfilled longings and sometimes just mess, that we can still run to you, that we can remember the greatest promise ever fulfilled, that we can enjoy a present love in relationship with you and that we can also sincerely rejoice in the permanent victory that has been won. In Jesus' name, Amen. This has been a podcast from St. Barts. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.